Pod Save the Queen! Hello and welcome to Pod Save the Queen. I'm your host, Zoe Forsley, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, Tracy Borman. Hi, Tracy, how are you? Hi, it's lovely to be with you. Now, we love having royal experts on the show and you are a double royal expert, I'm going to go and call you, because not only are you an author with lots of royal titles um, published, but you also work um, at for the Historic Royal Palaces. That's right. I like being uh, described as doubly royal. Um, that, that's yeah, yeah. Just, um, kudos, I think. So thank you for that. That's absolutely right. So I'm a historian first and foremost, and I have tended to write about royals uh, throughout history, particularly Tudor ones, but all the way up to the present day. And yes, my kind of day job uh, is working for historic royal palaces. So uh, my office is at Hampton Court, which is a pretty much a dream come true. Wow. <laughs> for, a, for a royal and particularly a Tudor historian, it doesn't get much better than that. That's absolutely incredible. I'm so jealous. We've got quite a nice office in London, but that is absolutely beating us there completely um, <laughs> on that front. Now, I'm going to ask you about and get you to talk about both of these subjects, but we're going to start off with your latest book. Now, I know you've uh, published both fiction and non-fiction work, but the latest Crown Inspector is a look back at royal history the blurb um describes it as a new history of the british monarchy tracy has examined every monarch from william the conqueror's triumph in hastings in 1066 all the way to the windsors of the modern day so Mm. how did this come about well, I have to say that uh, it's by far the biggest book I have ever <laughs> tackled, um, the biggest subject, you know, more than a thousand years of history. Um, and if it hadn't been for lockdown, I think I'd still be writing it. Um, it was quite <laughs> a challenge. So that was one of the upsides of the uh, of the pandemic for me was that I had to just be locked away writing, which was very good. So the inspiration for this book um, was the Queen's forthcoming Platinum Jubilee, which, of course, uh, is in February uh, this year. And then there's all the celebrations this summer around that. And I thought, what an amazing time to set her reign into context a bit, look at uh, her predecessors, and also, as well as as bringing to life the very colourful cast of characters in British royal history, to look at the institution of monarchy itself and how that has evolved, because we shouldn't really still have it. it. You wouldn't design it that way today in that, you know, monarchs no longer run the country, but they still play a really pivotal role. And over the centuries, they have adapted in order to survive. So I wanted to just look at the secrets of success behind the crown's long survival. Now, one of the things that you do in the book, which is particularly interesting, is you take current situations that all our listeners will be very familiar with uh, because they are they dominate the news and obviously if you're listening to this podcast you, you probably know what's, <laughs> what the, the royal headlines look like but you and you look back at similar things that have happened before because while to us as current royal followers it may seem mad and so dramatic that this is happening but with such a long-standing institution there's you don't really get many firsts do you most things have happened before that's absolutely right and so I've become a bit immune to press speculation that the monarchy is about to end because of the latest crisis because I kind of think yeah but they went through worse 250 years whatever it might be and the first one that springs to mind is is the whole kind of controversy surrounding Harry and Meghan's departure their shock departure from the royal family um now 
you know, you only have to look back to 1936 and then you have another shock departure, but even more <laughs> so because Edward VIII um, gave up the throne. He was the reigning king and he gave up the throne for an American divorcee, sounding familiar, uh, yep. Wallace Simpson, and departed from his royal duties, gave it all up uh, and, and went to live abroad. So he's all sounding a little bit familiar. <laughs> and actually that was far more of a crisis for the royal family because, of course, Prince Harry isn't uh, the incumbent. He isn't the reigning monarch. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he's not even first in line to the throne. It was still shocking, of course, but it was a much bigger crisis when Edward VIII abdicated. So I think as a royal historian, I think there are lessons to be drawn uh, from previous examples. And as I say, I always like to look back and see, has this happened before or are there parallels? And almost always the answer is yes. So this was a really interesting one, because like you said, so many comparisons were made in particular, as these things always tend to do when people look at the women involved, and so many comparisons were made between Meghan and Wallace Simpson. And they both had, they were both American, which did help, but how similar were they in terms of the roles they actually played? Because while it can on the face of it look very similar, there were a lot of differences, as you said, firstly towards, you know, this changed the whole royal family because it changed the, the line of succession because and it's how we now have our queen, obviously. But how in terms of, you know, how it, how similar were they? Mm. I guess um, the similarities were quite surface deep, really, both um, American divorcees. Um, kind of high profile socialites, I guess um, that. That's probably doing Megan a disservice because, of course, she had her own thriving career as a, as a Hollywood actress. Um, whereas Wallace Simpson was sort of more of a career party girl, really. Um, <laughs> she was seen in all the right places and had all the right connections, but really wasn't all that accomplished. And uh, she wasn't a great conversationalist. Her first recorded chat with uh, Edward VIII was about central heating, apparently. Um, and uh, wow. <laughs> I know that's a, uh, you know, that's the way to get your man. Talk about central yeah. heating. Um, and yet, and yet she had a certain something that obviously just utterly captivated Edward when he was Prince of Wales. And then, of course, he, he stayed true to her when he became king. Um, so, you know, I, I think really, of course, there are the obvious comparisons, but as I say, they don't go much further beneath the, the surface, really. They're American, they're divorcees, and they both lure senior royal men away from their royal duties. But there, I think, perhaps uh, the comparisons stop. And actually, um, Wallace Simpson seemed to positively shun the limelight. She didn't like all of uh, the public interest in her and Edward's relationship. Uh, she actually wanted to get out. She wanted to let him just go and be king. And she hated this sort of media circus. And I think we've seen perhaps that, you know, Meghan has, has embraced quite a lot of the publicity, the, the famous Oprah interview. So yeah, definite differences, I think. It also, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but Meghan obviously joined the royal family. Harry and Meghan did get married and they did it. And it felt like it was more a decision they made for them both, you know, they both made together. It was the right decision for Harry as well. Harry has always been very open about how he didn't enjoy his, you know, not didn't enjoy it, that's wrong, but he's, you know, wasn't a fan of the publicity that comes with obviously being a royal. So it felt like they did more together, whereas that was quite different 
previously, wasn't it? Yes, I think so. It did feel much more like a, a joint decision and and um, less so for Edward VIII because as Prince of Wales, he was this global celebrity and he courted that. He loved it. He was like the playboy prince and forever travelling the world, going to glamorous parties, loved that side of it. Although he did find his royal duties very, very stifling, um, very boring, actually. There are photographs of him looking very obviously bored uh, in his early days as king. So I think really whether or not Wallace Simpson had come along, I think Edward would have actually struggled uh, to be king. And, you know, I, I, the more I researched this, the more convinced I became that he probably would have abdicated anyway. I think that was definitely okay. the spark. But I don't think he was cut out to be king and he just didn't enjoy it. He was the perfect Prince of Wales, but <laughs> not the perfect monarch. Now, another huge royal story, obviously, of the last 12 months, well, the, the biggest royal story is the, the sad news at the passing of Prince Philip. And as well as mourning the Duke of Edinburgh, we've also watched, and I think it's what's, you know, most people have found kind of one of the more upsetting facts of it is, Kind of realizing and seeing the queen go into mourning and losing her you know such a strong sense of support and also one of the few people you know it's been said many times one of the few people that she actually got to be Elizabeth with not just the queen but obviously this we've seen this s- several times over the you know through the different generations of royal families if we've seen monarchs lose other halves Mm. We absolutely have. And, and the, the most obvious example being Victoria and Albert, one of the greatest love matches in history. They were very, very close in age. Um, they were from very similar backgrounds. They actually shared the same midwife, um, which is a oh, little... Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I know, they were born so close together that it was the same practising midwife who delivered both Victoria and wow, Albert. That's a good CV that midwife had, isn't it? I She's know, well there. I know. Exactly, exactly. So, um, and um, Victoria married Albert quite early in her reign, and it was an absolute love match for her, and I think for Albert too, Um she was um, pretty much obsessed with him to the extent that uh, she was very happy to take a back seat uh, in her queenly duties and, and be a traditional wife, let Albert kind of run the show. And, and he had real ambitions in that respect. So it was a kind of power couple relationship really there with uh, with Victoria and Albert. They were a very, very successful duo. Of course, they had numerous children, nine children, 42 <laughs> grandchildren, 87 great grandchildren. Of wow. course, they married them all into the royal houses of Europe. So Victoria became known as the grandmother of Europe. But then, then it all ground to a very sudden tragic halt uh, when Albert died at the age of just 42, possibly of typhoid, although there is a theory he was suffering from cancer. And, And Victoria's grief spiraled into irreversible depths. She could not cope without Albert. She'd been so reliant on him. She'd loved him so deeply. And she basically gave up her public royal duties for more than a decade. And I think that's where the parallel ends, because with our current queen, her marriage was was longer. Um, it was uh, it had many parallels in terms of the closeness between her and Philip. Um, but when Prince Philip died, uh, the queen was back at her duties after four days. So that's a real contrast to Victoria, who basically just couldn't cope 
Uh, she couldn't cope without him. And she's known as, as a widow, isn't she? You know, swathed in black, wearing her wedding veil a lot and um, really making a shrine to Albert wherever she could. Um, but it's still, you know, it's an interesting comparison. I think they are two of the most successful royal marriages in history, really. It's, I hadn't really thought about that comparison before, but it's so true. And I think many people were really, when the Queen did the a Zoom, enga or she, Zoom engagements immediately after, and I guess because where we were in the pandemic meant she didn't she didn't go out to things, which I guess was different. You know, she didn't have to travel up to Scotland to go to an engagement or something like that. She could very much do it from home, but still to see her kind of getting on with the job is, seems very much in, you know, the whole approach she's, she's taken to her reign. But are there, were there any other examples that stick out in your mind? I mean, there was there were numerous um, successful uh, royal pairings. I think they tend to be the other way around because, of course, we've had many, many more kings than queens. Um, so um, the examples that I really like to draw on go way back. So we're talking the kind of early medieval period where you get these the kind of power behind the throne, women like Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was the consort of Henry II. And she didn't really fit the mold of a traditional, you know, take a back seat in proceedings consort. Uh, she uh, once wrote a letter to the Pope and signed it, Eleanor, by the wrath of God, Queen of England. And that was <laughs> one of her style. She was a real powerhouse. And she actually. I love that. That's, that needs to be on an email signature somewhere. I the... kind of think I need to create. Yeah. I don't think it would have the same impact with the name Tracy. But, you know, let's give it a go. Um, but she acted as regent for her husband, Henry II, when he was as he often was away traveling, and indeed for their son um, and successor, Richard the Lionheart, who was always off crusading and Eleanor was there. So up to a point, it was a very, very successful royal pairing again, but Eleanor got a bit too used to power and she wanted a bit more of it than Henry was allowed to, was able to give her. And so she ended up actually rebelling against him uh, and, and she was imprisoned by her own husband. So that all went a bit horribly wrong. But in his, mean, better yeah. days, <laughs> in his better days, it was a very successful royal marriage as well. Similarly, actually, I, I wrote a book about uh, William the Conqueror's wife, Matilda, um, who was another, you know, kind of medieval matriarch. Um, and she also ended up rebelling against her husband because she didn't have enough power. And so this, this kind of early period of our royal history was very different. Actually, women had much greater power and they seemed to then gradually lose it. And so the Tudor period, we know about the Queen's consort of Henry VIII, of course, the six wives, but they didn't have nearly as much power. In fact, if they upset or objected to Henry in any way, then he probably executed them or divorced them. Um, so, so it went downhill a bit, I think, for female consorts after the medieval period. And coming back to Victoria quickly before we move on, the one of the things we really noticed was the Queen's children and grandchildren really stepping up to help her. And, you know, when she was mourning, without the funeral and in terms of public life and picking up some engagements and doing some of the meeting the public and you know giving updates when she perhaps wasn't in a position where she wanted or could do it is that something that happened with Victoria's family when she was in that you know deep stage of mourning um 
actually it was less so because um, even though she wasn't performing her public royal duties, Victoria did actually very conscientiously continue with her private royal duties. So she continued to read all the, the letters from her government to sign all the relevant papers. She, she upheld her constitutional duties. And her eldest son and heir was uh, known as Bertie. He was the future Edward VII. And she couldn't stand him. And neither could Albert when he was alive. And Albert called Bertie a thorough and cunning lazy bones. Uh, they, he was everything that his very morally upright parents were not. So he liked to party and uh, he was always going to the south of France and uh, hanging out with ladies of the night and uh, going to the theatre. And he was deeply shocking. So Victoria didn't want to give him any responsibility, really, which was a bit of... A mistake because he was one of the longest serving princes of Wales in history, of course, because his mother was queen for so long. Um, and he, he, that could have been a valuable training ground. But instead, she tended to hold on to the duties herself. And she didn't really have too many other options in terms of passing duties on to her other children, because, as I mentioned, she'd married them off mostly to, to European royals. So they'd gone off and they were kind of living their life on the continent. Um, so we didn't see the same kind of passing on of duties that we have definitely seen Elizabeth II do in recent times. So what happened from a public point during that period then? Was there just a bit of silence from the royal family and from the monarchy? There really was. And actually, it was a dangerous time for the monarchy because there was a growing republican movement. People were very uneasy about the fact that the Queen had effectively stepped back from the duties that they thought she should still be performing. And there was a really interesting comment made during uh, Victoria's long kind of period of mourning by somebody who said, you know, people want to see a crown and a scepter and that kind of thing. Um, that was actually the inspiration for the title of my book. <laughs> I was going to say that was either a very, very clever plug there or that was... <laughs> that was the, yeah, that was what I thought, ah, crown and scepter. Um, in other words, people like the pomp and the pageantry they missed that so even though Victoria was still performing her constitutional duties that was seen as secondary in importance people thought she should be there as this public figurehead as the monarch had always been and so there was a growing republican movement and um, somebody at, at the height of this movement pinned a notice to the doors of Buckingham Palace or the gates of Buckingham Palace saying um, you know property to let because of declining business. Uh, and there was this huge crisis. And in the end, Victoria's ministers basically begged her to come back, to return to her public role, because they said, otherwise you, you might not have a crown to come back to. And so she did. And then she came back um, with gusto. She came back full of opinions and very much more determined to be involved in government than she had been before. So I think they kind of wish she'd go away again, quite quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Reflecting back and missing that quieter period. And um, it's really interesting that you think she did think about that, but it's very much the Queen's motto now, isn't it? Is, you know, you have to be seen to be believed. And that's why I think, particularly during the pandemic, when we didn't see the royals out and about, she was still, you know, she learned how to do Zoom. And one of my favourite moments of the kind of, I say favourite, it's a bit of an oxymoron then, but one of the funniest moments of the last couple of years, I remember was Princess Anne 
kind of teacher when, while they were on a call saying to the queen oh no no just do this and it was just you know <laughs> represented every single zoom call I think I had with parents and my grandparents in the last couple of years and um, she was saying oh you don't you see me all the time you don't need to see me like pin their ones so it, was just, <laughs> it was great but you know even as you know she's in her 90s I think lots of people would have maybe forgiven her for not using all the technology but she was so determined to still be be seen and um, which is really interesting but one of the other people that have really stepped up during the pandemic has been at the Duchess of Cambridge um she's obviously just her just celebrated her 40th birthday she's the mum to you know three you know George Charlotte and Louis who were very high up on the line of succession and obviously the future king and we've seen her really develop in the 10 years she's been in the royal family ever since she married Prince William in 2011 we've seen her really change and grow into the role she's done that quite slowly which in a in a good way I in my personally believe if she she's learned how it works she's taken on things slowly at a time she hasn't kind of jumped into anything but we've seen her you know I didn't notice it until when I was doing this podcast I looked back to one of her first interviews she did it for a hospice when she was quite new to the royal family and the difference in her speaking is remarkable but we've seen her prepare for her future role which I found fascinating have do any other examples of when this has happened with previous monarchs or queen consorts did any spring to mind yes how interesting as well that you know you have been able to observe that uh, that kind of evolution because yes. when when you think of of uh, the duchess of cambridge you kind of just think she's always been polished and and perfect uh and so that's that's really interesting i think a lot of comparisons were made at the time of her wedding to prince william um between her and elizabeth woodville because that was the last time uh that uh, either a king or an heir to the throne had married a commoner as it was uh, seen that did, hasn't happened very often um in british royal history now elizabeth woodville was the the wife of edward the fourth uh, he was a very popular Yorkist king in the 15th century, brother of Richard III. And I think in a similar way. So she wasn't in it. She was in no means prepared to be queen. She wasn't she hadn't spent her childhood being groomed for that role, as so many had. Um, and you do see her making mistakes in her early days, far more so than the Duchess of Cambridge did, actually, um, or at least that we know about. Um, but she absolutely grew into the role and very, very quickly. And she became, um, you know, very capable, very shrewd politically. And I think like uh, the Duchess of Cambridge, she appreciated those public appearances and the power of those public appearances. The kind of, I guess, the PR of monarchy was something she she became very skilled at. Now, she did have her enemies at court. She had uh, she, she excited a lot of envy at court, particularly because she was a commoner. Um, but she grew into her role brilliantly and she was uh, the mother of a future queen. Uh, her, her eldest daughter, Elizabeth, became the consort of the first Tudor king, Henry VII. So I think there are comparisons to be made. And probably throughout history, really, there are other examples of um, women who have grown into their role. And, and I think... Um, Another one I would point to would be uh, the eldest child of James I, so our first Stuart monarch of Britain. And she was Elizabeth, um, and she was she went on to be Elizabeth of Bohemia when she was married. 
And uh, she started out just as a sort of princess of Scotland. And then she was a princess of Britain when her father inherited the throne of England um, and became so high profile that the gunpowder plotters who tried to blow up the king and his parliament actually planned to put Elizabeth on the throne uh, instead because she was so popular. By the, even though she was only nine years old, they would already spotted some potential there. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there are some quite inspiring previous examples, I think, of, of women who've really grown into that role. It's fascinating, isn't it? There's so many different tales. You know, we learn about so many of the royals at school or any reading we've done, but it's many of these tales that you don't perhaps see as much you don't see the development over the time so obviously for this book you've done a huge amount of research was there any royal in particular or any monarch that you found out something really surprising about or anyone you particularly enjoyed writing about well there were so many um I mentioned at the beginning that I'm a Tudor specialist so there were the kind of a number of black holes in my in my history which I (laughs) enjoyed going down um and I think among the monarchs who surprised me the most, because I didn't expect to get so hooked on them, was Henry I. Now, he's a bit of a hard sell. You think, what on earth did he do? Who is he? Well, he was the youngest son of William the Conqueror and probably the most successful of the early Norman kings. So um, unlike his predecessors, he uh, he wasn't a great warrior. He didn't win the crown on the battlefield. Um, He was uh, a great uh, scholar. Uh, he was known as Henry Beauclerk or Beauclerk. Um, he was a great administrator as well. Now, they're not particularly glamorous characteristics. They don't grab the history headlines, but they do make for a successful monarch. And he actually established a lot of English governmental practices that are still in place today. Um, but more salaciously, he also lays claim to the dubious honour of having fathered more illegitimate children than any other monarch in British oh, royal gosh. history, staggering <laughs> 24 children 24. by his mistresses. Um, oh, so that's not including his his children with his no, wife, that's just illegitimate children. No, they're just the illegitimate ones. So he was a a busy man all round. I became really, really interested. (laughs) And in more recent times, um, another monarch who I think has been too easily overlooked is uh, George V. So the current Queen's grandfather. Um, And I think he's been overshadowed because he was followed by Edward VIII and the whole abdication crisis. But George V was a fantastic character. He, He had sort of the Duke of Edinburgh's tendencies to make unguarded remarks and (laughs) kind of be slightly punished for them. Uh, He spoke his mind, but he also moved with the times. So his reign saw Britain's first Labour prime minister. Um, It was also the First World War, and he became a great figurehead for that. He gave the first Christmas broadcast, much against his will, because he said it would ruin his Christmas having to do it. (laughs) And he established the tradition. Um, And uh, he had this lovely relationship with our current queen um, because he made no secret of the fact he favoured his younger son, who became George VI, the queen's father. And he thought that, you know, Edward uh, VIII was completely unsuitable as king. So he, he got that right. But our current queen used to call him Grandpa England which I thought was <laughs> So I, I think like that a lot. One. Yeah, there's a lot to admire and lots of nice little surprises in the life of, of George V. 
And you mentioned when we started talking about how the monarchy over the years has had to adapt uh, to fit in with society, really, obviously, and the role that the Queen plays now is completely different to you know, what kings and queens before her did. How, from your research, how do you find that the Windsors in particular, the most, you know, in the current royals have adapted even within the short time they've been in the spotlight? Yeah, that's a really good question because they have had to adapt. There have been big um, changes in the monarchy over a thousand years, kind of moments such as the Bill of Rights when William and Mary Kate were invited to take the throne, but that's when it all changed because they were invited to take the throne, but only under severe conditions. And so really that's when we became a constitutional monarchy rather than a monarchy that ruled. But even during the Windsor um, kind of period, we've seen very significant changes. And actually, interestingly, uh, devotees of the crown will know this well, uh, but um, there was a, a very outspoken critic of the monarchy called Lord Altrincham who in the 1950s um, was pretty much a lone voice because the Queen had a lot, uh, commanded a lot of affection, um, as she still does, but in her early reign. But he called her a priggish schoolgirl and said that, you know, she, she can't give a speech um, that somebody else hasn't written for her. Um, she doesn't know how to engage people or relate to people on their level. And he called for change. He said the monarchy is not going to survive unless it starts to change. And so, for example, he pointed to outdated customs such as um, the coming out of debutantes, you know, when they're presented at court and the debutantes balls and all the rest of it. Um, and also um, the, the cost of the monarchy to the public purse. And it was as a direct result of Lord Altrincham's criticism that um, the monarchy changed and that it did modernise. And it's interesting that, and I think quite admirable, that rather than just, you know, be affronted by this criticism, actually uh, the palace invited Lord Altrincham to a meeting uh, with uh, Martin Charteris, the Queen's private secretary, um, who basically used him as an advisor and, and they kind of acted on his advice. And um, Charteris later said that Lord Altrincham had performed a greater service to the monarchy than anybody else he could think of. Um, and I think the Queen has continued with, with some of those initiatives, particularly streamlining the royal family who are dependent on the public purse so that reducing the financial burden of the monarchy. Um, and I think she was encouraged in this kind of modernizing agenda by her late husband. Uh, it was thanks to him that the coronation was the first to be televised in, in royal history. Um, and Philip once said, no one wants to end up like the Brontosaurus who couldn't adapt himself and who ended up stuffed inside a museum. And that kind of absolutely <laughs> epitomized his approach to how, you know, to, to the royal family and, and trying to keep it up with the times. And But I think the Queen has continued that. And I think, you know, very successfully through technology and um, and perhaps she's not the forefront at the forefront of change, but she has certainly uh, taken advice to change when needed. So um, I think as well, I would point to one of the most high profile events in the whole of the Queen's reign, and that is the tragic death of Diana, Princess of Wales, which did cause a bit of a sea change, I think, in the approach of the Windsors, because Diana had been by far the most accessible member of the royal family, enormously popular, a global superstar. 
And she really popularized things like, uh, you know, walkabouts and meeting the crowd, which had happened, but to a much lesser degree. And I think the Windsors appreciated they needed to learn lessons from Diana. Um, and, you know, there, there definitely was a renewed impetus to, to bring the monarchy closer to the people uh, in the wake of Diana's death, I think. And certainly today, whenever there's an engagement, that's always the, the top line that the paper and that people were talking about afterwards is, is Kate saying, oh, Charlotte's learning French or George, this is George's favourite film. It's those personal relatable details that are what people take away from it. And, you know, particularly some of the pandemic, you know, the, the uh, NHS handprints rainbow painting that Louis did. And then she did the Instagram versus reality, didn't she, where she posted that beautiful photo. And I think every parent looked at it going, how on earth did you do that? And then <laughs> you saw the follow up one of like, OK, you didn't. Great. I feel better now. Um, but yeah, as you said, it's taking that advice. Um, I think it's really interesting that they actually invited him in as an advisor because that's a hard thing for anyone to do, to take someone that's been so critical in and not just to kind of acknowledge it, but to actually bring them on side. But it's such a it's a very business savvy thing to do, actually, isn't it? Something that I think lots of companies could probably do with sometimes. Exactly. Rather than just get your back up and be mortally offended yeah. by it, you know, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. And that's what they did. They invited him right into Buckingham Palace. And, and actually, Lord Altrincham was not a Republican. He was a monarchist. He wanted the monarchy to survive. Um, and, and it's a good job that he was so outspoken about it, because I think it, he did the monarchy an awful lot of favours. Now, if it's all right with you, I'm going to get you to take off the author hat and pop on um, the other one, because I'd love to hear a bit more about your day to day job. So you are the Joint Chief Curator for the Historic Royal Palaces, which is a very fun job title, <laughs> as well as the great office. Um, but yeah, so can you what does that involve? I am so lucky because basically <laughs> for a historian, it doesn't get much more of a dream job. Uh, so as a joint chief curator with Lucy Worsley, um, we have basically managed the team of curators um, who are the historians for the palaces. So we look after six royal palaces, most notably Hampton Courts and the Tower of London and also Kensington Palace. And the, the palaces we look after are unoccupied except Kensington, um, which obviously is a palace of two halves and still a modern royal residence today. So, yeah, as curators, um, our job is to research the history of the palaces, uh, to curate exhibitions um, about that history. And we tend to be the sort of spokespeople. Um, if there's a media story involving the royals and we can bring a historical angle to that, then we do that. We give talks and tours um, and we get to delve about in the palaces. So probably my <laughs> favourite bit of the job is you get to lift up that rope, go behind the scenes, go through the doors <laughs> that say private. And, you know, even though most of those doors lead to something like a broom cupboard, it's still quite <laughs> thrilling to be able to go to those kind of places that, that not many other people get to experience. I remember my first week at Historic World Palaces. I've worked there for 13 years now. My first week stands out because I went on an induction course and in the HR training room, um, we were sitting there and I thought, God, that's a really nice fireplace. It was at Hampton Court. I thought this really grand, huge fireplace. The rest of the room looked quite 
office-like. And so I asked somebody what it was and they said, oh yeah, yeah, it is a nice fireplace because uh, this was actually Jane Seymour's bedroom and this is where she gave birth to the future <laughs> Edward VI and this is where she died 500 years ago. It's like, oh, and now it's an HR training room. So there you That's go. That's absolutely mad. Yeah, because you always assume that every room with royal you know historic significance is going to be as you said with a red rope and taped off and filled with information packs but I guess when you're in a building where every room has played probably quite an important part you need to put the the more you know admin I nearly said boring then obviously I'm not calling anything HR or admin boring Um, (laughs) you need to put the office space somewhere else as well exactly what uh, exhibitions have you worked on that you found particularly interesting one of my first projects was um, not so much an exhibition as a, as a garden, actually. Um, at Hampton Court, we created something called the Magic Garden, which was um, a children's play garden uh, inspired by the mythical beasts that Henry VIII decorated Hampton Court with. So uh, the kind of Welsh dragon, very synonymous with the Tudors, but also the, the kind of panther and the leopard and... Um, there's a lion and so these beasts kind of came to life uh, in the magic garden but my role was to help root it in the history of the palace so that it's not just a kind of adventure playground tagged on it's actually got some historical resonance and um, in a shameless name drop uh, the Duchess of Cambridge came to open the magic garden and uh, my daughter got to present her with a bouquet and it was just like one of my finest hours at historic royal palaces (laughs) Um, but a more kind of straight exhibition, if you like, um, that I have worked on was something that we opened last year and it was called Gold and Glory. And again, it was at Hampton Courts and it was celebrating this quite remarkable meeting between Henry VIII and the King of France in 1520. Now, the exhibition was supposed to open in 2020, but I probably don't need to say why it didn't open in 2020. <laughs> yep. uh, we, we opened a year later. Um, and basically, this the field of cloth of gold was blingtastic because each king was trying to outdo the other in magnificence. And so, in the exhibition, we drew together the biggest collection of items from that meeting uh, that there has been uh, since 1520, and uh, lots of fascinating stories along the way, such as. Henry challenging the French king to a wrestling match when he was a bit drunk and he lost and it all turned a bit sour thereafter. And then my favourite item in the exhibition was a letter from Anne Boleyn's father, who was instrumental in organising this event, um, because there was a diplomatic incident. So in preparation for the event, both the English king and the French king had grown a beard to kind of, you know, let's both have a beard. I know it comes down to such <laughs> trivia, um, uh, but and then it got close to the event and Henry VIII just suddenly decided to shave off his beard, which really upset the French because it's like that's an insult. So you get Thomas Boleyn, Anne's father, kind of groveling to the French saying, oh, look, I'm really sorry. It's Henry's wife, Catherine of Aragon. She hates him with a beard. So he had to shave it off. And, um, and there's this yeah groveling letter there in the exhibition. So it's those little personal details that always really appeal to me as a curator. And that's very, I find that very funny as well, because that's obviously such a long time ago, but an argument you could maybe over a WhatsApp message rather than a letter, but you could imagine a Movember promise yes. gone wrong or something, can't you? Sorry, my girlfriend hates it. I've had to, I've had to cut it off. <laughs> yeah. I'm in trouble. <laughs> See, nothing changes. 
Uh, I was lucky enough, oh yes, last year now, we've had New Year, to head to Kensington Palace for the exhibition around Princess Diana's wedding dress, which was amazing to see it up close. And the detail of it was beautiful. And obviously I've seen, I think everyone's obviously seen thousands of photos of it, but in the job I do, I've seen, I think, probably from every angle and <laughs> however many pictures. But to see it up close, you realise that, the photos don't do it justice. Absolutely. At all. So were you involved in that? Um, yes, I was. Royal style in the making. And and um, I've always been fascinated by, by Diana. I remember the wedding day very, very clearly, um, kind of clustered around a little television while we we're on holiday. <laughs> I should have been on the beach because it was a glorious day, but we were all watching the wedding. Um, and, and so to actually see this dress up close, um, it was the biggest possible privilege and and it's had such a reaction from visitors because as you say we we've all seen the photos of the kind of slightly creased dress that came out of the carriage yes. when Diana <laughs> arrived at the steps of St Paul's um but but when you look at the dress close up you just it's astonishing the craftsmanship and the detail and and the color of it it's it's actually a lot kind of darker colour than than perhaps you might expect. It's kind of more creamy, isn't it? It's, it's a lovely piece. And even though it's very much of its time and very kind of meringue-like in some respects, <laughs> it is a beautiful piece of dressmaking and vast. That train, I mean, the case that we had to build to yes, house the huge. Yeah, for anyone who hasn't been yet, the dress is in a huge glass box that mm. obviously made the length that the whole train is beautifully displayed on the floor, which yeah. I actually really liked as well, because it meant that while everyone was around the front to look at the main, you could you could see the lace in real detail because you could get a lot closer to it because, yeah. you know, rather than it just being behind her, you can walk down I'm describing this terribly but you can walk down either side of the box and see the whole train um, but yeah that must have been quite an undertaking in itself getting that getting that made it was it was so but not only the case we effectively had to um, transform a building as well for the exhibition so it's housed in the orangery uh, which was formerly the, the kind of cafe at um, Kensington originally built by Queen Anne to house her exotic plants. Um, but we we housed the exhibition in the Orangery because it was the only place big enough, actually, for that train. So <laughs> oh, yes, okay. yes, we managed Kensington Palace and there is a long gallery there, but it couldn't take the weight of that case. So we basically had to move the exhibition kind of out of the palace and into the grounds in the Orangery building, where it, it was the only safe place for it. And it was the only place large enough for this enormous train and the enormous case that goes around it. Um, <laughs> so it is the star of the show. But I think there are some other beautiful examples of royal dress worn by the Queen Mother, by Princess Margaret and her amazing masquerade costume, which was like this Georgian extravaganza of a dress. Um, and then other items associated with Diane, like her going away outfit and, and lots and lots of um, behind the scenes snippets about the Emanuels when they were making her wedding dress. And I, it, it's been one of the most memorable exhibitions to work on actually um and yeah it, it's a real treat so um, I'm delighted you got to see it hopefully lots of your listeners have as well yes we have had lots of people talking about going down and you mentioned the Emmanuel's actually one of the things that I loved was all the photos of them in the studio because I don't know why but you imagine 
I imagine everything to do with the royals to be kind of perfect and neat and very organized. And I loved all the photos of them just kind of sitting on the floor surrounded by paper and I'm sure organized chaos, but still chaos of, you know, yeah. bits of fabric and everything. And it was just such a fitting picture from that time. And I just, you could feel the excitement through those photos of these two really young designers going, oh my gosh, what are we, <laughs> what, how have we got this gig? <laughs> Exactly, because they they came out of nowhere, didn't they? They just had a yeah. call from Diana, and and that was the making of the Emanuels. I mean, my goodness, to have the biggest job in fashion history, uh, making Princess Diana's wedding dress, um, and the, and the lengths they had to go to to keep it under wraps. Um, yeah. So because the press were going through their bins to look for offcuts of materials. So they, they left, led the press on a series of wild goose chases, I think, putting random bits of material in their bins and uh, creating a whole replica dress. And, uh, you know, the, the windows had to be shuttered up and the blinds drawn and everyone sworn to secrecy so that the dress would be revealed for the first time on the big day. Um, and, of course, they had to keep altering it because Diana just lost more and more weight as the day it approached. And um, famously, she said she, she had more fittings for that dress than she had dates with Prince Charles before the wedding. So that puts it into some interesting context as well. It really does. And I know you mentioned that obviously it was moved to the orangery, which perhaps maybe wasn't where you first envisioned it being. But one thing I loved is it meant that when I went, you walked to it past the sunken garden and you could see the the beautiful new statue that was obviously commissioned by her sons, uh, Princess William and Harry. And for me, that was it just added another layer to it. And it was really lovely, actually, to see her because you could see you saw the start of her royal life and then you saw the statue, which represents her life as a princess so well you know it's a beautiful piece isn't it with the children around her and in the kind of modern pencil skirt and yeah I thought it was a really it was a, another layer to it I thought you saw both sides of it so maybe it was it was a good thing it's out there and it was nice to see a new building of it actually that's so nice to hear in fact you see if I'd been more uh, clever then I'd have said it was always <laughs> that way so that yeah. past the sunken garden and make that reference to to the wonderful <laughs> statue I'm so pleased though because it does help to build a little bit of context and I think um there's something quite special about leaving the palace walking through the gardens and then this dress and the accompanying exhibition having its own separate location and and it's quite a i mean the orangery is quite a stunning building in its own right and so and it's incredibly light and airy and and so yeah it, it does help to kind of build the whole atmosphere i think around the exhibition lovely well tracy thank you so much for joining me today it's been lovely to chat with you it's been such a pleasure i always love chatting about those royals yeah and where can people get a copy of your new book so as they say, it's available in all good bookshops uh, and online. So, yeah, you can pretty much get it everywhere. And of course, you can buy it at our historic royal palaces in our shops. Thank you so much uh, to all our listeners for joining us this week. As always, give us a follow on Instagram and on Twitter at Podsave. And until next time. Podsave the Queen! Podsave the Queen!